All right, here we are. Stanton Friedman was nice enough to stick around. Uh, there's plenty of stuff in the world of ufology. And again, as we're here, the eve of Roswell, um, Stan brought up a very interesting theory on, on the, um, the, the, the episode we did on Roswell. Uh, that that there in fact that the Roswell crash was actually a mid-air crash, a collision. That um, there were two there were two incidents, two crash sites, uh, and both of them are in his book Crash of Corona. Uh, the 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 is it the, the what's the subtitle? The Search for the Roswell Incident, Crash of Corona. I don't even know. That's okay. Crash, crash of Corona. Corona doesn't matter. Crash of Corona. There's only one of them. And so there, so we talked about the Roswell incident, but this this other one, this the San, San Augustine crash, is like twenty times crazier. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Stan, uh, this kind of came about where there was a, uh, an episode on Roswell um, for unsolved mysteries. And after that aired, a lot of people called in, and one person in particular, Gerald Anderson, called in and then recounted his story about this second crash site. Is that correct? Well, that's not not the whole story. That's I, I whole first story, heard Stan. about the, the second crash because uh, after a lecture in Minnesota, uh, somebody came up to me with his wife uh, and ever hear anything about it? This is before I was talking about Roswell. Ever hear anything about a crash saucer? Well, yes. Uh, and he said, well, he was a friend. Barney Barnett was his friend. He worked for the government, uh, water supplies and things like that in, in, in New Mexico. And uh, it turns out there was a crashed saucer with bodies, and the military came and grabbed stuff and so forth. And, you know, I'm all shook up. So uh, it turns out Barney, they were friends uh, with, he and his wife were friends with Barney Barnett and his wife. And uh, uh, I talked to a, a niece of uh, this man. And he had told her about the story, and she had told the people that I was talking to. So I started looking around again, that same old routine in, in the plains. And Barney Barnett was well known. And I, some, one of the things that happened, that Don Berliner and I put an article in the uh, Socorro newspaper. Anybody who knows anything about our new Barney Barnett or whatever, uh, and I gave an address and stuff, and somebody called me. I lived uh, across the street from Barney. Uh, and at one time, he, he was over there, Barney was older, and uh, he was telling him he had cancer, and he, he was he told uh, Harold Bacco was his name, and that's a common name down there, uh, that you know, maybe maybe it came from those bodies I saw, and it turns out, uh, or not that I saw, Barney said from the bodies that I saw, and I talked to Baca, and uh, this led me to other people, and uh, Barney had uh, heard about this this crash out there in the plains of San Augustine which is uh, less than 100 miles west of Roswell. And the important thing out in the plains of St. Augustine is the very large array radio telescope. Uh, it's a whole bunch of dishes look, listening for signals from outer space from aliens who decide to call in for pizza from Earth. I mean, who knows what they want. 
And so uh, uh, now I, I was doing a show in Toronto by phone, and somebody called in, a man named William Leed. He had been an officer in the military, and we talked off the air. Uh, and then I met with them uh, later on uh, when I went to Toronto on one occasion and stuff. Um, and it turns out he was very interested in UFOs. And his boss told him, this is in the 60s, uh, you know, if you're really interested, what you ought to do is talk to this guy, Barney Barnett, in Socorro, uh, because he saw bodies. So the next time... Uh, my guy, Bill Lead, was out there. He stopped by to see uh, the men we're talking about, Barnett. And Barnett wouldn't talk to him until he showed him his military credentials. And then he told him what he had seen, bodies and the crash. And, uh, you know, and so I, again, he was an officer, he wound up being a colonel. Now, I cannot throw away the testimony of a ranking officer. You know what I mean? You, you, of course. You, you can't ignore that. And then Gerald Anderson got in the picture, and I not only talked to him, but I took him on free UFO research, paid for a trip. We went out to the plains of St. Augustine. And they also paid for me to have him uh, polygraphed. We had already talked to a polygraph examiner for my movie, UFOs Are Real. And so we knew who to ask anybody out in that area, Gerald Luton, Missouri. Uh, and we got somebody from that, and he didn't resist being polygraphed. And I was there and took him to the polygraph examiner and passed with flying colors. Now, I'm not here to make a case that if it turns out in a polygraph, you, you can take it to the bank. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, we had found the best guy we could, and he says he passed the test. Well, now his, and Gerald his, tells his story. Yeah, so his story is amazing, though. I mean, like, because that's really, to me, that's what made me interested in the story, is Gerald Anderson's story about basically stumbling upon the UFO crash with his family, finds four bodies, two of them are alive, uh, one's badly injured, uh... And then a group of college kids and a professor who saw the crash sneak up behind them, and they're all interacting with this downed saucer and bodies. Uh, and then the army comes in, and, and of course, then the military came. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like a you know, it sounds like the plot of, of a B movie, but you know, from what I understand, this this happened. Gerald Anderson and his family really encountered this. I mean, that to me is the, is the well, story. I think so, and also. Um... I found a friend of his father's uh, in the town where he lived, and I went. Uh, what church did they go to? And I called there, and you know, you know, talked to the minister and so forth. And uh, it turns out a friend of his father's said that his that Gerald's father had talked about it. It wasn't something he was standing on a street corner talking about. You wouldn't do that. People forget. You talk about seeing a flying saucer back then. People thought you were a little nutty, you yeah, know. Definitely. When I check my audiences, people might be interested in knowing. I've given more than 700 lectures in all 50 states, 10 provinces, and 19 other countries. 
And at the end of my lecture, I normally I say, I get the first question. How many of you believe that you have seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer? I've defined my terms earlier. Just raise your hands. I'm not asking for your name. or just I'll just point and count. And I do that. And it's typically 10% of the audience, which is a lot of people. Everybody's surprised. But then I ask, uh, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. And then I'll say, how many of you were in the military at the time? There's still some. You want to tell us about it? <laughs> the first time I tried that, the guy says in front of 1,300 people in Texas, I can't. They told me not to say anything. Wow. <laughs> it was a great line. And uh, in another case in Indiana, Indiana uh, Indianapolis, yeah, Indianapolis, uh, at a campus, uh, the guy had had a sighting, and his hand was still up when I said how many reported it and how many were in the military. And 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 I said, do you want to tell us about it? They took my pictures, is all he said. And everybody's listening. I said, well, I'm sure the audience would like to know more than that. And they clap. And so he remained seated, didn't stand up. He wasn't making a big deal about this. He told the story. Of, he was a pilot on a four-engine Air Force plane flying over the Pacific when a plane 20 miles ahead radioed back that uh, saucer heading your way. They had gun cameras on the plane. They took pictures. They notified the base to which they were flying that they were bringing in, you know, film. You don't take the stuff to the drugstore in case people wonder military plane situations aren't like that. Uh, taken. They got debriefed and told never to say anything. And I'll tell you, I would bet you 99% of the people in that audience believe this guy. He just came across, you know, people are honest, basically, if you give them half a chance. And it it reassures many people when they see so many other hands going up. You know, if I have a crowd of 1,000, I've had 2,000. But if I have a crowd of 1,000, that's 100 people who raise their hands. And I'll never forget, I had afterward, I was at the head table. We had dinner and a talk, and so the woman says to her husband, how come you raised your hand when he asked who had a sighting? Well, I did. Well, you never told me about it. Oh, well, honey, we were just married. I figured you'd laugh at me. I mean, that encapsulates the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't casually talk about these things. No, that's true. But, but with this story, I mean, this is such a fantastic story. So I want to make the connection to the Roswell, because you think that they... they they crashed in midair. Happened at the same time. At the same time. I think they had a midair collision. One yeah. exploded over here. One came down, and had a gash on the side. And that's good enough for me. Yeah. But so, what what did Gerald tell you when when you talked to him? He recounted the story to you, correct? Yeah, he was with his father and his uncle. He was just five or six years old. I forget five, well, maybe almost six. And they were out there looking for moss agate. Mm -hmm. And they came across this this wreckage, this craft. In this case, you could say it was a flying saucer, a big round thing with a gash in the side, and bodies that had crawled out of it apparently. And uh, the, the craft wasn't destroyed; it was, you know, hit pretty hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a gash in the side, and the military guys were the threatening ones. And his his older brother was there, and identified an officer as a colonel or something, and uh, they were threatening. The, the, the military guys threatened the family. 
Well, and, and the college uh, kids. There were college kids and a professor there. I mean, this yeah. Was, were you able to track down any of them? I mean, this is you're talking about like five or six well, people who witnessed this event. Could you track down the professor? The we found team? the, the uh, uh, Don Schmitz, Tom Carey, uh, managed to locate the uh, professor. And he had, uh, had taught at Gerald's High School uh, in Albuquerque. Uh, and suddenly my mind went blank. I forget the name of the professor, but uh, he had been in the service and had been in the reserve. And I, my own feeling is he wasn't going to tell anybody anything. Hmm. I'm, look, the fear. This is 1947. So the war was only over two years. Yeah, Cold War is just beginning. Uh, yeah, and and. Uh, you know, if somebody threatens you, the military is God. Uh, you know, uh, people, it's, look, I was alive back then, so I, I know what it was like. Uh, the military had quite a lot of status, but the, the loose lips sink ships was only a small part of the picture about uh, Germans had to watch out, people of German ancestry were, uh, you know, given a hard time. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, and, we knew that it was important to keep your mouth shut. Uh, you know, gas rationing. Uh, you ever see headlights with the black paint over the top half of the headlight? Mm -mm. We we had them. That's the way it was in New Jersey. We were. I lived in a town where they had the biggest refinery on the East Coast and did 90% of the high-octane fuel, and we were worried about German submarines coming and... Uh, sending shooting guns and destroying us, starting fires and all the rest of it but you took these things very seriously and everybody had somebody in the family who was in the service and so it was pounded on you all the time that we have to protect our men we can't there are spies you, you cannot talk about these things uh and I had a couple of uncles who were in the military, and they talked very little about their wartime service. It was something. It wasn't fun. This wasn't a joyride. Mm -hmm. This was war. It was hell. As somebody whoever said that, war is hell. So there was a different attitude. This wasn't the Vietnam era. You know, where Vietnam veterans came back and were, were treated badly by the public. World War II wasn't like that. And uh, even if you were a conscientious objector, you <laughs> served uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, to have you working in hospitals and stuff like that. But uh, uh, So uh, the whole tone of everything was, was different. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's hard to explain to people about what it's like, but, you know... <sighs> How many people did we have in the military? I think it was 10 million altogether during World War II. And, you know, when people ask me, why would aliens come here? One of the things I point out, you know, from an alien viewpoint, this is a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. We killed, we earthlings, nice guy earthlings, killed 50 million people during World War II. Mm -hmm. 50 million is a lot of people. We destroyed 1,700 cities. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear about the atomic bomb, and Dresden had, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of casualties from our bombing of Dresden. But there were bombings going on all over the place. 
So it was a different kind of world. Uh, and remember, this is why my being nuclear matters here, that uh, nuclear weapons, yes, we've exploded, and a lot of people are surprised at this, we've exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. Only two on people, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh but what people forget is nuclear is not only useful for destruction, it's also useful for propulsion. And to illustrate what difference it makes, a big bomb in 1944 was a 10-ton blockbuster. Released the energy of 10 tons of dynamite. One bomb. It took a big B-29 to carry it. Okay, first atomic bomb, 1945, released the energy of 16,000 tons of dynamite. First H-bomb, hydrogen bomb, a nuclear fusion device, 1952, released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite. And the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was a few years later, released the energy of 57 million tons of dynamite. One stinking weapon. So what I'm saying is, from an outsider's view... We don't want these idiot earthlings out there. Look at them. They kill each other. You know, how many kids died of starvation last year? Uh, But we got to buy more bombs and bigger bombs and explode more. Many people think we've only exploded a few H-bombs or a few uh, atomic bombs. 2,000. So uh, as soon as you say, hey, those idiots can come and bother us, we better watch out for them. That's not trivial, in other words. Uh, The increase in damage capability when you go from a 10-ton blockbuster, 10 tons, to 57 million tons is rather enormous. Mm -hmm. Scary. I'm scared, and I'm a nuclear guy. (laughs) Right. No, that's really interesting. I mean, you're making the parallel between the increased sightings, which started in 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and when that was when, yes. you know, two years after we dropped the nuclear bombs. And it, as you're as you're pointing out here, there's an, only an exponential increase that continues to this day. Um, that's a really interesting place to end it. I think uh, when you're talking about crashes, is really what would be a visitor's perception of us as they land on this planet, or even observe it from afar. And I think you've kind of encapsulated it. So, a lot of people starving. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Uh, well, Stanton, thank you for this um, extra little bonus story, as well as a very perceptive view of how we really and truly exist in the galactic universe. So, thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening.